What's up, guys? I'm your host, Brooke, and this is the very first episode of M is for Murder. Let's start this first episode off by talking a little bit about how this podcast came to be and my kind of origin story with true crime, if you will. I have, for as long as I can remember, been a fan of murder and mystery and scandal. Something about it has always drawn me in. Getting clues and putting the puzzle together and then the end moment when you find out what happened or who did it is such an amazing moment for me. So if you can imagine, I'm not a huge fan of cold cases because I need the conclusion. I need the satisfying wrap-up. That's what does it for me. So, although I do find cold cases interesting, they leave me with a sense of incompletion. So, I prefer cases that have an ending. When I was 10 years old, I was spending the night at my friend Michelle's house And I'm sure we were supposed to be asleep or something, but I snuck downstairs and Michelle's mom was watching something on TV. So I, of course, being 10, stopped to watch knowing that I shouldn't. And what I saw scarred me for life. I can see the scene in my head so vividly, even to this day, many, many, many years later. But at the time, I had no idea what I was watching or what it was about. All I remember is a man finding a little girl, a little blonde girl, which is important because I'm also blonde and was young at the time. This man finds a young blonde girl taped to a pole in his basement and she is so pale and so rigid. And he's hysterically crying and screaming and she's dead. Okay, so I'm 10 and this is what I see on television when I'm not supposed to. So I can't tell anyone that I've seen this. So it just has to keep replaying in my head over and over and over for years. So I actually had to do some digging to figure out what it was that I saw. But I figured it out. It was... Perfect Murder, Perfect Town. It was a um, 2000 American television miniseries about the 1996 murder and botched investigation of John Benet Ramsey. So that scene I saw is when John Ramsey finds John Benet in their basement and she's dead. So I guess it's probably like later that day from when they find the ransom note. So she's she's been dead, so... The reason why she's rigid is because she has rigor mortis. Anyways, I rewatched the clip once I figured out what show it was. And it's so very obviously a doll. But when you're, let's see, if it was the year 2000, I would have been nine. When you're nine years old, you have no idea what dead people look like. Um, So that could have been very realistic for me, which it was because it traumatized me. But anyways, um, my parents would probably ask at this point if it was so scary and so traumatizing, why do I like true crime? 
And I don't know. I don't know. But you're probably here because you also like this kind of thing. So I feel like we don't need to go down that rabbit hole and figure out how that led to this and whatever. It is what it is. I like true crime. So we're going to talk about it. Okay. And I don't want to spend too long on, um, you know, going down this backstory. But if you think that um, the M is for murder title of this podcast sounds familiar, it's because it is, sort of. Um, it's a nod to Sue Grafton, one of the great mystery writers, um, and her Alphabet series. So she had A is for um, alibi. Uh, C is for corpse, M is for malice, um, all the way through Y. And unfortunately, she passed away before she could wrap up the series with Z. But anyways, she's from Louisville, just like my husband. And um, she's a great writer. I loved her series. The fact that she made um, a woman the main detective was amazing. And... Anyways, oh, also there's this scene from an episode of The Office where Phyllis has to go to the Steamtown Mall to get Sue Grafton to come to their party. And I have no idea why they picked Sue Grafton to be this, quote, celebrity that was at the mall that day. But it just always makes me chuckle. It was like two worlds colliding because they're such different genres, The Office and Sue Grafton writing murder mysteries. But anyways, so here we are. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll dive right into today's episode. So for today's episode and the very first episode, we are gonna start with the letter A. And today, A is for asphyxiation. So asphyxia, literally in Greek, means the absence of the pulse. But through forensic medicine and forensic science, it's been come to be defined as the deprivation of oxygen. The definition that I found online through Oxford was, quote, the state or process of being deprived of oxygen, which can result in unconsciousness or death, end quote. Without adequate oxygen, the nerve cells in the brain begin to die within two to four minutes. This causes irreversible brain damage, which is also known as brain death. So let's talk about a normal room with normal air. The normal concentration level in that room for oxygen is 21%. As soon as that concentration level starts to dip, that is when you start to see problems arise. So when the concentration level is between 10 and 15%, you start to see impairment of cognitive and motor function. Then once you go less than 10%, you lose consciousness and anything less than 8% that is when death occurs. Now, a person can lose consciousness in as little as 40 seconds and die within minutes. However, these times vary so differently because of circumstances and how much 
oxygen is restricted at the time. So if 100% of oxygen is restricted from the get-go, then it can be as little as 40 seconds and they can die within minutes, but that's usually not the case. So it can last longer than that. There are two types of asphyxia. Um, you can categorize it in two different categories. You've got mechanical asphyxia, which includes smothering, plastic bag asphyxia, choking, compression of the neck, or strangulation, uh, traumatic asphyxia, positional asphyxia, and drowning. Then you've got chemical asphyxia, which is poisoning by a chemical asphyxiant, which includes carbon monoxide, cyanide, and hydrogen sulfide. Suffocation is a term, I had to kind of look into this because I, I guess I just always assumed that suffocation and strangulation were very similar, but suffocation is a term that's used for when an environment is deprived of oxygen. So while strangulation, you are being deprived of oxygen, the environment itself isn't being deprived of it, only your body and your brain. So suffocation would be things like the plastic bag asphyxia because the environment inside that plastic bag is deprived. Or for example, if you were locked in the trunk of a car and you breathe out all of the oxygen out of that air and that's the only air in that environment, that then becomes deprived of oxygen and you can suffocate. So that's the difference between strangulation and suffocation, which I definitely needed to look up. Another thing I found interesting was drowning. So drowning in itself is a form of suffocation, but there are a couple of variations of drowning. You have near drowning and you also have secondary drowning. Near drowning is when you die of complications that you suffered while you were drowning, even if you were resuscitated and able to get oxygen to your brain again. One of the problems in determining asphyxiation as a cause of death is that post-mortem findings may be incredibly limited or not at all present. One of the things they do look for in autopsies is bloodshot eyes, and if that is present, then it is possible that asphyxiation occurred. They also look for petechia, but petechia is not alone enough to prove that asphyxiation happened. It's only one of the factors that they look for. The Encyclopedia of Forensic Sciences says that, quote, the so-called classic signs of asphyxia are absent in asphyxial deaths and present in non-asphyxial deaths, end quote. So what I take that to mean is the signs that are present when it was not asphyxiation are the signs that are missing when it was asphyxiation. So it's not what's there, but what's not there. So now that we've been over asphyxiation in general, let's dive into this week's case, the murder of Annie Lay. Before we get started with the case, I just want to apologize for the background noise. My puppy is under my desk chewing on a bully stick and my goodness is it loud. So if you are listening on headphones, I do apologize. At some point, I hope to either one, record everything while she sleeps, 
which is not a lot, or two, figure out how to get that out of there. But I am no audio engineer, so for now, apologies. Okay, let's get into it. Annie Lay was born in San Jose, California on July 3rd, 1985. She was raised by her aunt and uncle in Placerville, California, along with their three sons, whom she considered like her brothers. I keep meaning to look up if it's Placerville or Placerville, but Placerville sounds better, so we'll go with that. All right, I also couldn't find anything about why she lived with her aunt and uncle and not her parents, but by all accounts, it seems like everyone was still very close, so I'm, I'm not sure. She graduated valedictorian from her high school in 2003, and even though she was always busy with schoolwork, she made time for those she cared about. Those who knew her said she, quote, had an outsized personality with an infectious laugh, end quote. She was awarded nearly $160,000 in scholarships and attended the University of Rochester in New York. Which I just realized is on the other side of the country from where she grew up. That's fine. I, for some reason, that just didn't click before. Um, let's see. Well, she majored in cell developmental biology and had a minor in medical anthropology. And it was here at the University of Rochester that she met Jonathan Wodowski, her future fiance. I also looked into this to try and find out how they met or when they got engaged, but I couldn't find anything on their personal relationship. But in 2007, she began at Yale as a graduate pharmacology student. Her research dealt with the treatment of diabetes and some cancers. On September 8, 2009, Annie Lay left her apartment to head to her office in the Sterling Hall of Medicine at Yale. Around 10 a.m., she left her office, leaving her purse, credit cards, and cash, and walked over to where her research laboratory was at 10 Amistead Street. Now, there is surveillance footage of her entering the building just after 10 a.m., but there is no surveillance video footage of her ever leaving the building. At 9 p.m. that night, after she did not return home, one of her housemates called the police and reported her missing. So, like I said, there was no video surveillance footage of her ever leaving the building, and there were 75 cameras. So, one would think that one of these cameras would pick her up leaving, but since none of them did, investigators decide that they were going to focus on this building. If there was no footage of her leaving, something must have happened to her in this building. So the FBI, the New Haven Police, and the Connecticut State Police are all involved in this search. The Amistad building was part of Yale, and so in order to get around a lot of the hallways and the rooms, one would need a Yale ID. So this led investigators to focus on employees and students, because without an ID, a Yale ID, it would be really hard for someone to move throughout this building. As standard procedure over the next couple of days, 
they're interviewing all of Lay's coworkers, and they find out that Raymond Clark III was scheduled to work in room G13, the same as Lay, on September 8th, the same day she went missing. They also note that he has scratches on his arm and face, and when he was asked about them, he said that they're from a cat. So a standard procedure in a missing persons case, the investigators interview Lay's coworkers, family, and friends. Now on September 10th, one of Lay's coworkers, Rachel Roth, she finds a box of hygienic wipes on a cart in room G13 or the Amistad building with what looked to be blood splatter on it. So she shows it to Yale officer Sabrina Wood, who calls the FBI to the scene. While she's waiting for the FBI to show up, she notices one of the animal lab technicians, Raymond Clark III, doing what she considers to be some suspicious things. One thing he does is he's moving this box of wipes around and, tr and moving it so that the blood splatter is facing away from her or away from the opening and is facing towards the wall. Um, he also was like leaning on the cart weird while making small talk and she just found it very strange. And then she said he was scrubbing a drain in G13 that did not appear to need cleaning whatsoever at that time. Uh, there was just a lot of suspicious behavior that this lab tech, Clark, was doing that grabbed people's attention. He voluntarily went up to Yale officer Jennifer Garcia and told her that he saw Lay working in G13 at 10.30 a.m. on September 8th, and then he saw her leave that same day at 12.30 p.m. But like I said before, there is no footage of her leaving the building at all. So the investigators interviewed Clark, and they learned that he was assigned to take care of animals in room G13 and in two other laboratory rooms on the day that Lay went missing. Now, up until September 12th, investigators are insisting there's no evidence of foul play and no suspects, even though they have been collecting bloody evidence and things like that. But they're insisting that they don't have any reason to believe foul play occurred until September 12th. On this day, they find bloody clothes in the ceiling. They found a rubber glove, a white sock, a blue short sleeve hospital scrub top, and a pair of Vikings brand boots that say Ray C on them. One of the shoes, one of the boots is missing a shoelace and everything is bloodstained. So they collect it and send it to be tested, and this is when they declare the building to be an actual crime scene. They also do a chemical analysis, and they find blood-like stains and spray patterns that were cleaned off the walls in room G22 and G13. And it was later confirmed that it it was in fact blood. On September 13th, investigators are struck with this awful odor that they know to be 
a decomposing body, so they call in cadaver dogs. And right away, the dogs hit on a dead body in a cable chase behind a toilet in the basement bathroom. I had to look this up, but a cable chase is basically an opening where you can get to the cables that run behind the wall that run all the way from the basement to the roof. So you don't have to tear down a wall anytime you need to work on something. So they go into this cable chase and they do find a decomposing body and it is that of Annie Lay. She is wearing surgical gloves with her left thumb exposed and surrounding her body are several items including a green ink pen, a stained lab coat which looks to be stained with blood, and a sock that matches the one previously found in the ceiling. One of the things that makes this case particularly upsetting for me is that September 13th, 2009, the day her body was found, was intended to be her wedding day. That was the day that she was supposed to be marrying uh, Jonathan Wadowski, and unfortunately, that would never happen. So the autopsy showed that she died from, quote, traumatic asphyxiation due to neck compression. Uh, I looked up traumatic asphyxiation, and it can also be known as crush asphyxiation, which occurs when pressure is placed on the chest so that normal respiration cannot occur. One of the instances where traumatic asphyxia or crush asphyxia is commonly present is crowd riots. So that time that there was a riot at the soccer game and a bunch of people died because they were all pushed into each other, that's trauma asphyxia and that is what Annie Lay suffered from. Uh, it was also revealed that she had a broken jaw and a broken collarbone that happened while she was alive. Now remember that the officers, the investigators, found her five days after she had gone missing. And so she was decomposing. One of the um, unidentified officers told the New York Post that the qu killer, quote, just crushed her in there. She was like mush. She was so smashed up you couldn't recognize her, end quote. That is how they found this 24-year-old woman. Um, it was also reported that her bra was pushed up, her underwear was at her ankles, and there was semen found um, on different parts of her body. So this green ink pen that was found under Lay's body was the pen that Clark had used the morning of September 8th on his time card. After the investigators figured this out, they took a detailed examination of his key card and the times that it was used in the Amstead building. And they discovered that between August 27th and September 7th, Clark entered into room G22 only three times and entered into room G13 only once. But then on September 8th, the day that Lay went missing, he entered room G22 11 times and room G13 five times between the hours of 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Uh, it was also discovered that Clark was the only one to use his key card to get into room G22 
on September the 8th. So they use this information to get a search warrant on September 15th for mouth swabs, body hair, fingerprints, and fingernails from Clark. The sock that was found in the ceiling had both Lay and Clark's DNA on it, and then the green pin had Lay's blood on it as well as Clark's DNA on the cap and the barrel. And then over the next couple of days, more hair and blood was found in various lab rooms around the building. So on September 17th, Raymond Clark III was arrested. He was held at McDougal Walker Correctional Institute at a $3 million bond. At a hearing on October 6th, Clark did not enter a plea. The hearing was then delayed until January 26th because evidence, not all evidence had been provided to both sides. But at that hearing, he pleaded not guilty. There were more standard hearings throughout 2010, but then on March 17th, 2011, Clark actually pled guilty to the murder of Annie Lay in exchange for 44 years in prison. On the additional charge of attempted sexual assault, Clark entered an Alford plea where the defendant does not admit guilt to the crime but concedes that the evidence would probably convince a judge or a jury of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It is said that Clark showed great remorse at his sentencing, but he did not offer and has never offered an explanation or a reason. He said, quote, I stand here today taking full responsibility for my actions. I am truly, truly sorry for taking Annie's life, end quote. Lay's mother made a statement to Clark at his sentencing, quote, you took away my only daughter. Her future is gone. Her life is gone. Society has lost a beautiful woman. My family has lost a beautiful soul, end quote. Clark is currently serving his sentence at Cheshire Correctional Institute in Connecticut and is scheduled for release on September 16th, 2053. I know a lot of the times we hear about someone being sentenced for murder or a crime and they're given a certain amount of years and it seems like a great sentence, but then they are paroled or released earlier and we all feel that not enough time was served. But I have good news for you. Those serving time for murder in Connecticut are not eligible for parole. So Raymond Clark III will be almost 70 by the time he is released from prison. guys that wraps up the first episode of m is for murder thank you so much for listening i am so excited to get this project going i have talked about and thought about this for so long i would love to connect with any listeners out there you can find me on instagram and twitter at m is for murder pod you can also check out the website m is for where you can find full episodes sources used for every episode and a little bit about me if you care to learn more. You can contact me via the website or any social media. I would love to hear from you if you've got corrections, questions, concerns, a case you wanna hear about, or you just wanna chat, feel free to reach out. Don't forget to subscribe. There are new episodes dropping every Friday. Next week episode is the letter B. 
Have a great weekend, stay safe, and I'll see you on the internet.